we were given a choice, we would not say, hey, let's sit down and just talk about death today. I mean, that wouldn't like be something we would sign up for. But the reality is, is that 250 to about 300,000 people die every day. Can I say that again? About 250 to about 300,000 people die every day. Uh, the reality is, is all of us are going to face that unless Jesus returns before then. But here's the question. Are we ready? Are we ready for what follows death? We can't stop death. We don't know when it's coming. We don't know its timing, what day it will come, what hour it will come. But the reality is it will come. We will face it. The question is, what will happen to us after death? And Jesus talks about that in our story today, a, a story that is a story, but it's a story that speaks of real, true destinies, realities that come forth from that, there are truths that, that you and I must take heed to. And ultimately, as we close out today's teaching, we get to a point where we've got to listen and we've got to obey. We've got to be willing to turn and trust in what we just sung about, the world's only hope, our only hope, and that's Jesus. He's our only hope. And so today as we begin, I would like to do this, because in our world today, there are many different views of what will happen after death. And could, so if I could start with, with these and then move into the text and to the story that Jesus shares with us this morning. The first view is, is a naturalist view. There are those who fall in this category, and they will tell you that we do not have a soul, that you are just a body, and when you die, you will cease to exist. There's no existence of any sort, of any kind, following your death. All right? that's, that's not true, but there are many who believe that in our world. The second is universalists. Uh, many hold to this view, and their belief is that everyone, or almost everyone, depending on who you talk to in this group, goes to heaven, and that hell will be empty or sparsely populated. Uh, some will say that all religions, those in this category, lead to the same God, right? Lead to God, and that all paths end in salvation. That's not true. That's not what the Bible says. Uh, Jesus died because he said totally differently. And so we'll see that today. Furthermore, under this category of universalism, there is a Christian, and I use the word very loosely. It's a pseudo-Christian version of this. It's actually deceptive. It's false. Um, and it comes under the guise of Christianity. But it's this view that says there is an opportunity for post uh, mortem salvation. So after one dies, you can be saved after you die, okay? You can meet Jesus, and eventually everyone will be saved because when we die, we'll see him, and our hearts will eventually change. That is absolutely not true either, right? But there are many people that believe different aspects of universalism in our world today, and even in some Christian sects and different groups as well, which is obviously not true. Uh, the third one is reincarnation. They will tell you that you have multiple successive lives, that you will die, return again, die, return again, die, return again, and that you have to pay off your karmic, right, karma, karmic debt 
to the God or gods or even the universe, and that's not true. So that's interesting because a lot of people talk about karma today, all right? Karma is a very evil idea. It's not a biblical idea whatsoever, but yet it's referred to a lot. Um, And so we have to be careful that we don't even allow ourselves to go there also because karma is not a true teaching, and obviously reincarnation is not either. A fourth one is soul sleep. This is an interesting view, and actually Jesus will address this in the text. It will come out. Soul sleep is a view that when a person dies, his soul sleeps until the time of the future resurrection. All right? So it's, it's got the Bible in view, and it's got some aspects of it that, it that speaks of when Jesus returns and he will raise the living and the dead, uh, and, and that will happen then. So their view is that a person uh, sleeps until that time. And so in this condition, the person's not aware, he's not conscious. Now, what's interesting about this, Jehovah's Witnesses believe this, um, Seventh-day Adventists hold to this doctrine as well, as do most conditionalists. And so they are those who say that the wicked are judged uh, and they don't exist anymore, okay? And so this would be kind of a form of annihilationism. And so we'll talk about that in a second. This means that after death, a person... Uh, ceases to exist. And so at the future resurrection, they maintain the soul is made again. So the soul is made again. And then basically, it's a recreation of the individual. Seven-day Adventists teach that the soul is simply lifeless and resides in the memory of God. Not true. Right? Not a true view either. It has no weight when it comes to the Bible. The fifth one is annihilationism. This is a view that even some Christians hold. I remember being in seminary. These are different views that we looked at. Um, It's a view that when people don't know Jesus and they die, they simply cease to exist or they suffer for a while in hell and then eventually they cease to exist no more. Some, all right, that are in hell would probably wish that was true and merciful, but that's, that's not a true view. We don't see that held up in Scripture at all either. The sixth view as well is a view that many uh, who adhere to Catholicism believe. It's called purgatory, right? They believe um, that people will die, they will suffer for a while, and this place called purgatory is a part of finishing off their work of salvation so that ultimately they might be in heaven. Nowhere in Scripture, all right? We don't see that at all in the Bible, all right, and so that is something that's been, been added, so it's, it's not true. The seventh view this morning is the Bible. What does the Bible say? And that's what we want to know. There are these other views that people hold, and probably some more, but these are ones you will hear. But what does the Bible say? And so the story that Jesus teaches us this morning tells us. Tells us about the truth of death and the life after, and how you and I can make sure that we are ready for such. And so look at verse 19 through 21. He says this, Jesus does. He says, there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple, fine linen, joylessly living in splendor every day. So this guy had it all. There was a poor man. His name was Lazarus. He was laid at his gate, the rich man's gate, covered with sores, longing to be fed with crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his Sores. It's a very graphic story. There's a reason for it. Jesus wants to get our attention. And so Jesus begins this parable by comparing two characters, 
with completely different lives here on earth. The rich man, what did he do? He wore purple habitually every day. Imagine his closet, all right? There's a whole lot of purple going on. And so what does purple signify? Royalty. You wore purple, <laughs> you can imagine this, this is awful, uh, as, especially as a man. You wore purple, okay, for what reason? To let everybody know you had wealth, that you were rich. And that's what this guy did. He wanted to declare to the world that he was wealthy. So he dressed like a king, enjoying comfort, luxury of this world. Now, there's a reason Jesus is saying this. And you remember last week, what did Jesus talk about? He talked about money. He talked about what we did with our money. He talked about investing into the kingdom of God, but many people will invest in their own living, their luxury. They love the, the world and the pleasures of it more than they love the kingdom, more than they love Jesus. The context of this parable is actually found in verse 14 through 18, right before here. We didn't really get into these verses a whole lot, but if you look at verse 14, remember Jesus was talking to his disciples and the Pharisees were also listening in, and he said, Luke does, that the Pharisees were lovers of money and were listening to all these things, and they were scoffing at Jesus. They were making fun of him, laughing, angry at him. Um, and Jesus said this, and I want you to look at verse 15 through 18 real quick. I'm going to just touch this and move out of it real quick. But look what he says. He says, you are those who justify yourselves. This is Jesus to the Pharisees. In the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. You remember these guys? They abused the use of religion. They abused the use of the law that they were to uphold and teach. Not only teach, but to live by they handled it poorly. They did not care for the sick. They did not care for the lame or for the poor. They taught that money was evil, yet they were lovers of money. And so these men were hypocritical men. God knew their hearts. But look at verse 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel. So law and the prophets until John the Baptist came. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. So there's a lot of people trying to get into the kingdom of God, right? And, and some through many different doors. But listen to what verse 17 says. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. What would these guys do? They, they would change the law, the teachings of the law. They would add to the teaching of the law. They would subtract. They would basically take the law and do what they wanted with it for themselves, for their own gain. And then look at verse 18. And the reason this is there, you might read this text, you might say, why in the world is just this kind of tossed in there? And then he moves on to the story. Well, he's talking to the Pharisees. And what they would do is they would, they would jack up the law. They would, they would make changes, take away from it, add to it. And here's one that they would do. Verse 18, everyone who divorces his wife marries another, commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Basically what Jesus was saying is, hey, the law says this, and this is a true fact. You can't get away from it. You can't change the law and twist it. This is what is true. And here's what they would do. They would belittle women, right? I mean, they, they, would, they would fit in greatly a lot of times in, 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 in our society today in many different ways, but they would just belittle women, um, mistreat them. But yet if a man came, they would give him a pass. Say, all right, divorce, divorce your husband. And yet it would leave women without money, 
poor, their name dragged through the mud, I mean, you name it, in these horrible situations. And so they would twist this law. They would twist it. And what Jesus is saying, hey, this is the truth. You, you, you can't twist this. And they would do that. They, they would twist things in their own ways. And we do that today, too. We'll, we'll, we'll take certain scripture and we'll, we'll twist it to fit our own leanings and our own desires, right? But here's the key phrase here. God knows their hearts. And their hearts were very hypocritical. They loved money, and they loved the attention of others, the praise of others, more than they did the praise of God. And so that was the issue. They didn't love God. They didn't, ultimately. They didn't love Jesus, his son. And that was the issue. Now, that's a big deal, because in this parable, if you don't love God's son, Jesus, right, your destiny is bad. It's bad. And so the rich man in this parable is a representation of the Pharisees, but not only that, people who love the wealth, the comfort, the pleasure, the praise of men here on this earth more than they love Jesus. And it's seen by their actions, okay? Their hearts are, and God knows their hearts. And so look at this other guy, this poor guy. So you have this rich guy, then you have this poor guy, and he has a name. Jesus gives him a name in, a story, in this story. His name is Lazarus. Now, don't, don't think that he's speaking of Mary and Martha's brother, the guy he's going to raise from the dead. Don't think of that. But when you get to the end of the story, it's kind of interesting because he's going to talk about resurrection and about raising someone from the dead. And so what's interesting is the occurrence of Lazarus being raised from the dead happens after the telling of this story eventually. And so I don't think Jesus just says this name, just, you know, he just, oh, I'm just going to call this guy Lazarus. I think there's reason for it. But in the story, it's just a name. It's just a name. So I'll make sure you know that. So this, this isn't a real man he's talking about, okay? It's a story he's telling. So he, it bids the question, why does he give him a name and not the rich man? He wants us to sympathize, Okay? He personalizes the poor man because he wants us to sympathize with his condition. And so what is his condition? He is poor. It seems he's incapacitated. Maybe he's unable to move because he was placed at the gate and he's laying there. He was begging for food. He wanted the crumbs from the rich man's table. He was diseased. He was hungry. He was unclean. He was despised. The only people coming near him were who? Dogs. That was the picture. So this is Lazarus. This is the man at the rich man's gate. And so here you have two pictures of two characters, completely different. The rich man had it all, earthly speaking, and Lazarus, earthly speaking, had nothing. But look at next. Jesus addresses death. He addresses the life after. He says, the poor man died, was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died, was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes. Being in torment, he saw Abraham far away, Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out, and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, the poor man, so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. So, so here it gets real. Jesus now talks about this poor man. He talks about this rich man. And he talks about their death. And he talks about their destinies, which were as different as their lives were on earth. 
And the first thing we see here is death. We see death. The poor man dies. The rich man dies. We all will die. That's what will happen. God created you and I with two parts, physical, spiritual. We have a physical body. We have a spiritual soul. And we will all die. Death is the result of sin. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. It includes physical death. It also includes eternal separ- it includes separation from God. That will be eternal as well if we don't turn to Christ as Lord and Savior. And so death happens. The physical body uh, ceases to function and goes into the ground right, and is buried. That's what happens here in this text. But our spiritual soul continues to live on beyond death. Here's how Paul saw it. 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul says, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and be at home with the Lord. Paul couldn't wait to leave this earthly tent, this physical tent, and have his soul be in heaven with the Lord Jesus. That was his view, that's his belief. That's our view and belief as Christians that happens at death. That we're absent from the body, but present with the Lord in our spirit, our soul. Our soul is who we are, by the way. It's who you are. And it will live on forever. And so since we're all sinners, we all will die. That's what this text, I think, tells us. We'll die physically and spiritually. We'll continue to exist until our soul is rejoined one day. The Bible talks about this, First Thessalonians 4, with our resurrected body that would be made new for the Christian made new for the kingdom of God. That's our hope. So two men here. What happens? The poor man dies, right? It doesn't say anything about his burial because it probably wasn't significant, okay? It probably very insignificant, his burial, his service. But it says that angels came and carried him away to Abraham's bosom, Right? Hebrews 1 tells us that angels are ministering spirits that God has created to help and serve us. Right? So to carry him away to Abraham's bosom, Abraham's bosom here is simply Abraham's side, the side of Abraham. It's a place of honor. It's a place of blessing. Specifically, what we would call it is heaven. Right? This is what we would call heaven. Abraham was the father of faith and the faithful, And here where he is, is in heaven, and this is where the poor man go. It's where all the saints are. Those who have trusted, follow Christ, have been chosen by by God to be with him forever. Uh, And this poor man is no longer suffering. He's not hungry. He's loved of God. He's experiencing God's grace to the fullest. And, I mean, he is happy. He has experienced the fullness of joy, the fullness of joy in the presence of God. The Bible speaks of heaven or paradise in Luke 23, 43. Jesus is hanging on the cross between two criminals, and he said to one, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. It's the place where God's presence is. It's where Jesus is. And as Paul says, uh, we, uh, one day we will see him. We'll be in his presence, and we will be like him. It's the place where all believers go, right, when they die. And that's where this poor man goes. Then the rich man. The rich man dies too. And it says he is buried. It mentions his burial. Probably because his was probably pretty elaborate. You imagine this scene? His funeral? A lot of good things said about him. Probably. 
probably even said, since he was such a religious guy, this guy is in the presence of God today, right? But if you look at verse 23, it says, in Hades, he lifted up his eyes. In Hades. In Revelation 20, verse 13, Hades is pictured as what? It's a place where people are awaiting judgment. This is what we would refer to as hell, okay? This is hell. Before we get to picturing his condition in hell, I I want us to hear this. On earth, what was this man's actions? What was his heart like? Well, his actions revealed what his heart was like. And and here's one verse that I think kind of helps us on this. And this this should speak to us this morning. 1 John 3, 17. John says, whoever has the world's goods, the things of the world, are, are rich. Okay? They have the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? And so this guy had no heart change. He did not follow or trust in Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And it was seen by his works. Okay? Works don't save you. right? Works do not save you. But what are works? James tells us this, that you will know them by their deeds. Faith without works is dead. See, true faith is seen, I don't know what that was, is seen, and one's actions, how they live, how they care for the poor. Their heart is seen by the way they live. And this man obviously was seen for one who did not care for the poor. He cared more about himself and the luxury and the comfort and pleasures of this world than he did this sick man laying outside his gate, it seems, for many days. And so as a result of this, this man never had a heart change. His life was never transformed by the Holy Spirit He never turned to Jesus. And therefore, where does he find himself? He lifts up his eyes and he is in hell. Dies, immediately lifts up his eyes in hell. So is he unconscious? No, fully conscious. Is this soul sleep? Not at all, right? Fully aware. And he is where? He is in hell. Torment, it says in verse 23. Being in torment, then verse 24, he wants Lazarus to come and just, man, just give me a drop of water and cool off my tongue. Why? Because I'm in agony in this flame. So, so, so here's the best image I can give you. Imagine this, that you are in a building and it is on fire. Flames are everywhere. Flames are everywhere. And you can't get out. There is no way out. And you are just constantly trying to find a way out. And and it is just burning. And so are you. And you are there forever. And it never stops. That's the picture. That's the picture. And so he is in torment. And he cries for mercy, right? But it's too late. He can't count on his Jewish heritage. He can't count on maybe the faith of mom and dad. He, he can't count on 
The fact that he knew all 600 and something laws. I mean, he can't count on these things. Because why? He never trusted in Christ. He never trusted in Christ. The Bible says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through Jesus. Except through Jesus. That's it. And he never turned and trusted in Jesus. And so he longed for just a gift in this moment. He longed just for relief. Come and just send Lazarus over here. Let him give me just a drop of water. So it's interesting here. Can people in hell see people in heaven? In this story, it's portrayed as as they do. And so that would be agonizing. Wanting to be there, but you can't. Wanting to be in heaven where others are experiencing the greatest joy of being in the presence of God, yet you can not forever. And so one's eternal destiny is sealed upon death. There's no second chances. And then this life is your opportunity. Look at verse 25. One life, one opportunity that we have. Abraham said, child. So this is Father Abraham in the story, talking about to the rich man, child or son. Remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise, Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. God has many attributes. When we think of God, what do we think about? Maybe we think of the fact that he's holy. We think that he's a loving God. People want to, to hang out there only a lot of times. God is a loving God. But God is also a just God. He is a just God. And so when you think about the justice of God, God is always right and true. And so the reality of the fact that, that sin or sinners cannot be in the presence of God, God is true to that and just to that. He doesn't you know, turn an eye to that. And so this idea, when, when we look at the justice of God, it includes also his wrath. He is a God of wrath. We don't talk about that a lot. We don't want to hear that. We want to talk about God's goodness. We want to talk about his love. But here's the deal. Just as God is love consistently, simultaneously, and perfectly all the time, so is he a God of wrath simultaneously, continuously, and perfect all the time. He is. That's who he is. And so, when the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, right, and sinners will face that, God is just to punish the sinner who never turns to his son Jesus. He is just. Many people will lean on the love of God and say, oh, he's a loving God. He would never do that. But he is a just God. And you want your God to be just, (laughs) You want him to. You want him to punish injustice. You want him to. And so, that's what we see here. And he, and he says to this man, Abraham does in the story, that, hey, listen, you had an opportunity here on earth, but you chose a different path. You chose to live for yourself. You hardened your heart to the things of truth. You harden your heart to Jesus. You harden your heart to the gospel of the kingdom of God. But yet, here's Lazarus. The picture of Lazarus is humility, right? And who did Jesus come for? I think this is a good place to just remember. I didn't put it on the screen, but Luke chapter 4, verse 18. 
The Bible tells us the spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus says, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And so Lazarus is pictured as one who experienced that. He experienced that, that his life was changed. And that's why he's in the presence of God. But there's this great chasm I want us to see in verse 26. Besides all this, between us and you, this is Abraham talking to the rich guy, there's a great chasm that is fixed. It's not going away. Nothing can change it. So that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. The chasm is great, and once death occurs, there is no changing places from one place to the other. The opportunity is when? Now. While you are physically alive. Do you see how your physical life is a gift? (laughs) How every minute is a gift? How every moment is an opportunity? And that's the idea, one of the ideas of this parable. And here's the deal. Jesus is the only way. And so there is a chasm for us. Even today, there is a chasm, right? And it's between us and God. And that chasm is because of sin. And we're all sinners. The Bible says, Romans 3, 23, all sin. All fall short of the standards, the perfections. All fall short of the glory of God. We, we do. And so there's this separation. And Jesus came. And he died on the cross to breed that bridge. And he's the only bridge. You can't do enough good things. You can't try to not do bad things. You, you can't do anything to try to get to the other side. You, you can't. We're hopeless. You can not do anything. I can't do anything. But Jesus came. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says that, that God the Father made Jesus, who had no sin, who was perfect, sinless life, to become sin on our behalf. So that what? We could become the righteousness of God. So that we could be made right. So that that chasm that separates us from God could be bridged. And that we could be seen just as God sees Jesus. Wow. Because just like in the video we saw, our resume ain't going to work. Ain't going to work. But the referral... That's the only way. I'm with him because of what he's done for me. That's our only hope. And we only have this life. There's no second chances. No second chances. And then so look what happens. Verse 27, 28. He said, then I beg you, Father. So there's a rich man back to Abraham. I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. And so send Lazarus. To come back to earth, wow, this is, this is getting so, I love this story. For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. What's interesting about this, I want you to think about this. So, so it seems there's not only consciousness, reality of torment, fire, burning, all this kind of stuff that, that is agony upon agony forever, but there also seems to be the continual thinking of 
life here on earth and people. And the reality of like, oh my goodness, I don't want anybody else to experience this. My five brothers. Can you imagine that? This is the only way I can compare this to. The only way. I can't think of anything more. But this would be agony. This would be, this would be agonizing here on earth. If I ever got news that I had something terminal. And say I had like two months to live or whatever. And I, I could not imagine. I mean, I, I'm, I'm good with death. I'm good with life after. I'm good with all that. But I could not imagine for that time until that happens, knowing it's going to happen, just agonizing over four kids and a wife and just thinking I, I wouldn't be with them. I, I couldn't be. That would be agonizing to me. That would be agonizing. That's the only thing I could even think of. And then, and then to be in hell. Can you imagine that? And just thinking. They don't know. I don't want them to know this. This is, this is the worst of all worst, of worst, of worst, of worst. I don't want them to know this. That would, how much agony that would be. I couldn't imagine that. Agonizing. Agonizing. And so what's the point? Don't wait. Don't wait till it's too late. Get your soul right with God today. Trust in Jesus and tell everyone else that you can. Turn, trust, and follow him. Don't wait. But what will happen is many will harden their hearts. Look at verse 29 through 31. Abraham said back to this rich man, hey, those five brothers of yours, they have Moses and the prophets. Moses and the prophets First five books of the Bible, the rest of the Old Testament. Okay, that's Moses and the prophets. They have that. Let them hear them, the words of Scripture, the truth. But he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Send someone from the dead. Send Lazarus, right? Right? Then they'll turn. Then they'll change and turn to what's true and right. But he said to him, Abraham did, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. So you can rise up a guy soon after this story is told by the name of Lazarus, and what are they going to do? They're going to want the guy who raised him from the dead killed and him too. <laughs> and that's eventually what they do, John 12. Jesus, obviously that's the main point here. Jesus is going to raise from the dead. And they make up theories and stories about the fact that, no, that he didn't. They stole his body. And that's still going on today. And, and, and they will denounce the meaning of his death and, his, and that he raised from the dead. Jews do that. They don't accept that. Or if they do, they will say, well, that's your Messiah. It's not mine. And so that's carried on for years and years and centuries and centuries. What's the point here? The scriptures is God's tool, right? The the scriptures is what God has used to bring life. 
It speaks of the gospel. Romans 10, 17 says this, that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Jesus, from the word of Christ the Messiah. We're saved from God's wrath when we hear the word of God, God's primary tool in bringing people to faith. Um, whether on a day like today, in our hearts, as our hearts stir and we start seeing the reality of our situation, that we are sinners and that God is a wrathful God and a just God and a loving God, and that he must respond to sin rightfully, and that if we have never trusted in Jesus Christ, his way, his truth, and he is the life, if we've never trusted him to save us from, from God's uh, wrath, that, that we'll be separated from, from him forever in a place called hell of torment and fire, in a place of, of memory and remembering people and hoping they didn't want to come, and just, can you believe the agony upon agony in a burning fire forever? I mean, so here's, that's the reality. So the question is, are we going to harden our heart to that, or are we going to say, God, what is the way? What's the way out? What's the rescue? What, what's the way to, to not be on the other side of that chasm and looking into heaven one day and being like, oh my goodness, why did I not turn and repent and trust in Jesus when I could have? And you remember a few parables a few weeks ago, maybe months ago, excuses, 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 excuses. And Romans 1 says, no one will, is without excuse. No one. And especially if we're here today, because the word of God has been taught, the truth of God has been taught, the Holy Spirit is at work, whether you know it or not. And so no one is without excuse. So what do we do? Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved from the wrath of God. Acts 4, 12 says, there is salvation in no one else. So whatever else you may be trusting in to save you today, I want you to know it's not real, it's false. And it's a lie from the pit of hell trying to get you there. There is salvation in no one else except Jesus. For there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And so simply today, have you, have you trusted in Jesus? He is God's gift. If you're here today, you might be thinking, man, you, but you don't know my life. You don't know my life. I, my life is jacked up. I'm a mess. Man, guess what? <laughs> That's exactly why and who Jesus came for. We all, that's our story. We all have had our lives wrecked because of sin. We all have hearts that are deceptive, that are full of lies. The Bible calls all of us not good. In fact, the Bible even calls all of us evil. <laughs> the Bible even calls us all child of the devil. I mean, I know you came this morning, you're like, I really wanted to hear all that. Thank you, thank you. If you came for the, emotion, uh, the uh, motivational talk, all right, keep waiting. We'll see when that comes. All right, so here's the deal. Here's the deal. That's true. That's all true. So here's the reality. What must we do? Real simply, I've got to confess my need for Jesus, that I'm a sinner, and I must trust in him and believe in my heart that God sent him to die for me in my place, and I must 
Believe that. And that he rose again from the grave, conquering sin, death, and the enemy, so that I, I could conquer the power of sin, the power of the enemy and death, and know that I am a child of God, and that one day I will be with him. But until then, as a result of my believing and trusting him, I'm going to follow him, because now he's my Lord, and he's my Savior. And so have you ever come to that place where you have done that? I mean, can you remember a time when you have professed Jesus, confessed him as Lord and Savior of your life and believed him? And can you say today that I sit here today, I am a child of God. Can you say that with confidence? The Bible says those who are children of God, you are in the Father's hand and you're in the Savior's hand forever and no one can snatch you away. But we also must be careful that we're not deceived to think that we are when we're not. And so that's why today's parable is so just significant to make sure, hey, listen, where are you? Where are you? Because this is real. And if we don't deal with this, all right, and we're honest and truthful about this, life's going to be rough. We're going to live in fear. We're going to live in doubt. All right? And then when that moment comes, and if we're not ready, we see what happens here. And it's real. Trust in Jesus. Don't wait. Okay? Let's pray.